morning. Welcome to Convocation. My name is Jan Bender Shuttler from the History and Political Science Department. And I wonder if you know that the federal government mandates that all colleges and universities that receive federal assistance of any kind should celebrate Constitution Day, which is actually tomorrow. And although many of us may bristle at any kind of mandate that might interfere with academic freedom, we do have a lot of latitude to determine how we celebrate Constitution Day. The History of and Political Science Department is given this responsibility each year, and we found all kinds of ways to do this, usually uh, conversations um, in the late afternoon or at noon, uh, but today we're really happy to have a convocation slot. And today I'm really pleased to introduce to you Dr. Leroy Berry, Jr. as our speaker for Constitution Day. Dr. Berry is a retired professor of political science at Goshen College with a long history of service to this institution. He grew up in Sarasota, Florida and went on for his BA in history at Eastern Mennonite College, finishing in 1966, after which he did things even like teaching junior high school for a couple of years in Cleveland. Um, he went on for a political science degree at Government and International Studies, a PhD at uh, Notre Dame, finishing in 1976, and specifically his specialty in Latin American politics. Um, at Goshen, he taught a variety of political science, but also Latin American history, African American history, and other uh, history subjects. Although Goshen had started teaching political science or had a political science program since 1927, Dr. Berry was the first professor here to have a PhD in political science and taught here between 1969 and 2010, either full or part-time. He was my professor at Go when I was a student at Goshen College in the 1970s, as well as the favorite professor of my son, Paul, who graduated five years ago. And this year, we're hoping to strengthen political studies here at Goshen and not let the legacy that Dr. Berry has left behind of 41 years to lie dormant. Dr. Berry's family has also given dedicated service to the college. Two daughters taught here. His wife uh, was a professor in the education department here. Um, and these days, he's a very um, happy and dedicated grandfather. Um, Dr. Berry, at the same time he was teaching, also pursued a career in law. Uh, finishing his JD at the University of Illinois Bloomington in 1984 and beginning a private practice in Goshen. After his retirement as a professor, Dr. Berry continues to serve the community as a lawyer, being one of the few lawyers in town that offer bilingual services in Spanish and represents people dealing with many facets of immigration law. Dr. Berry certainly embodies the core value that we are focusing on this year of compassionate peacemaking. I know that the subject of the Constitution is particularly dear to his heart, not only as a professor of politics, but also as an African American whose rights are protected by that document. He has done research and writing on the subject of the Constitution in the past, and I look forward to his insights today. His title is The Court, The Constitution, and The Matter of Choice. So please help me welcome Dr. Leroy Berry, Jr. back to Goshen.
Thank you. Thank you for that word, Jan. I think it was, uh, I was trying to, trying to understand who you were talking about a bit there, but I, I guess it's me, and, I, and I'll take it. Okay. But I want to talk today about the court, the Constitution, and I changed the wording a bit, the factor of choice. And doing so, I want to talk about or speak on the court's power and its various sources and the problems that that power or the exercise of it presents for a representative democracy such as ours. I want to suggest that there is no definitive or satisfactory solution to that problem. And I want to uh, particularize it a bit by referring to a case that was recently decided, namely the health care bill. Uh, I know that the sub, uh, one of the, the topic shows that I was supposed to speak on Shelby, versus, uh, Shelby County versus Holder, the civil rights case that was recently decided by the court, but I think the health care bill and the topic that I've chosen is more of a generic, in a more generic nature because the, um, the health care bill dealt with an issue that the Supreme Court has identified as a major problem to be solved in its jurisprudence because it involves the Commerce Clause. The United States Supreme Court is an anomaly in our political institutions. Our political system is said to be one of the most, if not the most, democratic in the world. As a country, we take pride of place when it comes to holding our government and political leaders accountable for the power that they exercise in the name of the people. We put our senators, our representatives, and presidents into and take them out of office by way of frequently held elections. Representatives and presidents then are accountable in elections. But this is not the case for the Supreme Court. Such direct accountability is not required by the court, even though it was established as, with Congress and the executive as co-equal branches. It mem its members get lifetime appointments, and if they behave themselves, they can remain in their jobs. Perhaps this is so because the framers of the Constitution thought that the court, given its nature, was destined to become in last, in terms of power, that it actually exercised. In Federalist uh, number 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote, whoever attentively considers the different departments of power must perceive that in a government in which they are separated from each other, the judiciary, from the nature of its functions, will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution. And in the very next paragraph, he said, the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power. Syllogistic logic may have been on the side of Hamilton's conclusion, but the logic of history proved it utterly wrong. For the Supreme Court is a major center of power. It is unclear how much the US public knows or understands about the United States Supreme Court. A report of the results from a political knowledge quiz conducted by the Pew Research Center in April of, of 2010, revealed that 28% of the respondents were able to correctly say who the current Chief Justice of the Court is. 53% didn't know, 
8% said it was Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court justice who died over 20 years ago. Six identified former Justice John Paul Stevens as the Chief Justice, and four thought it was Harry Reid, the current majority leader of the U.S. Senate. That same report noted that typically, the court's decisions do not attract a great deal of the public's interest, observing that about 34% of the public allow, followed the news of the court's determination of the outcome of the 2000 presidential election in that highly controversial case, Bush v. Gore, compared to 44% that had followed the story of the terrorist attack on the USS Cole that occurred less than a month before that election. Professor James L. Gibson of Washington University in St. Louis did a study in which he sought to find out to what extent the court's decisions negatively affected the public's confidence in its exercise of its authority. The assumption being that the decisions such as Bush v. Gore and Citizens versus uh, United versus the Federal Election Commission, that such decisions most likely damaged the public's belief that the Supreme Court acted in ways that were cons consistent with democratic values. He drew the following conclusion. The Supreme Court is the most legitimate political institution within the contemporary United States. He saw, also observed that numerous studies have shown that the American mass public extends great legitimacy the court, to the court. Typically, Congress is depicted as being dramatically less legitimate than the court. Thus, one might, on the basis of such findings, reasonably conclude that while the U.S. public doesn't know or doesn't even care to know much about the Supreme Court, it nevertheless has an abiding trust in the court and an unwavering expectation that the court will, quote, do the right thing. This perception of the Supreme Court as having an affable guardian and protective-like role in the U.S. political system is undoubtedly one of the sources of its power but it is not the fundamental source. That distinction belongs to Marbury versus Madison, a case decided by the Supreme Court in 1803. That case said that the Supreme Court, and only the Supreme Court, has the final authority and obligation to say what the provisions of the Constitution mean. The Constitution, of course, doesn't say anything of the kind. One searches the document in vain with the expectation of finding an express declaration that supports the Marbury Court's conclusion that only the court has the final authority to interpret the Constitution. Nevertheless, ever since Marbury, the court has been able to declare statutes of state legislatures and Congress and the actions and orders of presidents and other public executives elected and otherwise impermissible under the Constitution. But that is not all. First, the provisions of the Constitution are neither self-revealing nor straightforward. Many of its parts contain what one justice called, quote, majestic generalities and ennobling pronouncements, with broad phrasings and provisions whose limitations are not clearly marked. He was speaking of such phrases as prohibition of the freedom of speech, equal protection of the laws, and cruel and unusual punishment. Such phrases have no precise or concise meaning. Secondly, the Constitution, though it is one whole document must be, and must be read as such, 
contains distinct parts, parts that are in some instances added, or were in some instances added, at widely separated points in American history, parts that were favored and opposed by greatly disparate groups, parts that reflect quite distinct and often radically distinct premises. In the same vein, former uh, Supreme Court Justice David Souter remarked that the Constitution is no simple contract because its language grants and guarantees many good things and good things that compete with each other and can never be all realized all together at once. The nature of the Constitution itself then requires that it has an interpreter. And since Marbury, the question of who that should be has been, for all practical purposes, closed. In the end, the Constitution, with its majestic generalities and ennobling pronouncements and their unmarked limitations, means precisely what a simple majority of the court members says it means at any given time. And while some of its provisions and circumstances with the right set of facts may be subject to what maybe some have called a fair reading, that is, applying facts in a case to the relevant rules stated in the Constitution to see if the two coincide. If they don't, the plaintiff loses. If they do, she wins. Those kinds of cases hardly if ever come before the Supreme Court. Thus, the old adage that says, whoever has an absolute authority to interpret the law is truly the lawgiver, is especially applicable to the US Supreme Court as the sole interpreter of the Constitution of the United States. The public's abiding reverence, reverence and the political system's acceptance of what one might call the judicial amendment to the Constitution by way of the Marbury case, when joined with life tenures, subject only to good behavior that the Supreme Court members receive, the absence of any requirement of direct accountability to the electorate from justices, and the inherent nature of the Constitution itself, combined to make the court practically invincible, a reality that defies all conventional wisdom regarding the exercise of political power. But it will be said that there are devices designed to protect against the court's abuse of its power, and that is true. Stare decisis, or precedent, is a principle that requires the majorities of the, of the court, the current majorities of the court, to follow decisions that were decided by earlier majorities unless there are very, very compelling reasons for not doing so. And though this principle continues to serve as a check on the court's decision-making, it can be and is ignored at the court member's discretion. It is widely acknowledged, for example, that Justice Clarence Thomas has little regard for precedent, and the results can be seen in the way the court majority now interprets the Second Amendment to the Constitution. Checks and balances were also built into the system. Yet I think that from a practical point of view, such devices are more apparent than they are real. Sure, the president selects prospective judges with the advice and consent of the Senate, but that is a blunt instrument. The process will tolerate one or two nominees being rejected as unfit, as was the case when Nixon attempted to appoint G. Harold Carswell and Clement Hainsworth. 
but eventually someone has to be appointed. And once the appointment is made, the matter is a done deal. <clears throat> and the successful nominee is free to decide as he or she desires. On the other hand, the Constitution does not say how many members the Supreme Court must have. Theoretically, one will do. So there's nothing that makes the current set number of nine members of the court obligatory. Congress can change it. Yet historians tell us that the great FDR learned a hard lesson when he tried and failed to persuade Congress to increase the court's membership in the 1930s. Congress also approves the court's budget. But when has Congress ever actually tried to enforce accountability on the court through the exercise of its power over the budget? And, yeah, what would happen if it even tried? Congress also has the power over the court's jurisdiction, subject, as you might imagine, to the court's review. What then of the good behavior requirement as a condition of a member remaining on the court? I know of only one sitting Supreme Court justice who resigned because of misbehavior. Abe Fortas did that in 1969 when it was revealed that he had accepted tens of thousands of dollars from wealthy benefactors while he held office. Among the current members, Justice Clarence Thomas has the greatest reputation for having conflicts of interest. He has been accused of deciding cases in which the outcomes inured to the benefit of his wife, Jenny, and the conservative libertarian organization with which she is affiliated. The justice has been accused of receiving valuable gifts, financial and otherwise, for himself and his private causes from wealthy individuals who profited from decisions that he made as a Supreme Court justice. Absolutely nothing has come of such criticisms thus far, and the odds are that nothing ever will. The Supreme Court, as a center of power, like the executive and the Congress, is also the focus of powerful non-governmental independent organizations and interest groups that seek to influence its decision. But it is not lobbied in the manner that the other two branches are. Lobbying in that form is strictly prohibited. Instead, a more courtly form of lobbying is employed. Actors who are non-parties to cases before the court, who nevertheless perceive that their interests could be affected in some way by a prospective decisions, are generally permitted to file what are called amicus curiae, or friend of the court briefs or documents, explaining why what they have to say should be considered by the court. Amici Curie filings are the typical form of interest group articulation before the court, but court members are, as you might imagine, free to accept or reject such overtures at their discretion. One organization, however, the Federalist Society, an organization made up of conservative and libertarians, arguably interacts with and influences some of the Supreme Court members in ways that can be objectively classified as classic lobbying. One of the organization's main functions is to recruit and cultivate members who share its goals of shaping the court in a manner that comports with its core values, which in general are cutting back on federal government power vis-a-vis -vis the 50 states, the diminution of, federal government, of the federal government's capacity to re regulate business and individual behavior, except for perhaps criminal activity, and the diminution, if not the elimination, of the welfare state. The influence of the society on the court can be seen in the number of its members who are also current members of the court, 
and in the decisions that they have written. There are five such members, Clarence Thomas, Anthony Kennedy, John Roberts, Antonin Scalia, and Samuel Alito. A recent book, The Federalist Society, How Conservatives Took Back the Law from Liberals, chronicles the society's extraordinary success in achieving its objective of reshaping the federal judiciary during the last 40 years or so. What then, given the enormous power that the court has, is the answer to the problem presented by what I've called the lack of requirement of direct accountability to the people for the exercise of its power. In 1971, Robert Bork addressed this question. Bork was concerned about the court's legitimacy as a result of decisions that the court, under the leadership of Earl Warren, had rendered during the period from 1953 to 1969. He argued that the Warren Court's decisions had generally been so unprincipled that he feared the court was in, in danger of losing the public's respect for it as a governing institution. While all courts were susceptible to committing such errors, errors, he said, the Warren Court was the worst. He suggested that the only effective way to avoid the dangers of the court's unprincipled decision-making was to appoint judges who were less liberal. He concluded his article by saying the Supreme Court's constitutional role appears justified only if the court applies principles that are neutrally derived, defined, and applied. Neutrally derived being from the Constitution itself. Many conservatives agreed with Bork and thereafter developed a movement that aimed at ridding the federal judiciary of liberal judges who caused the problem and replacing them with conservatives who could be trusted to solve it. The movement began under Nixon's presidency as that president explicitly stated that his goal was to appoint strict constructionists to the bench. It quickened under Ronald Reagan's presidency and culminated in the establishment of the Federalist Society that I have just described, of which Bork became a member. The impact of the focused effort to put principled decision-making judges on control of the federal judiciary could be seen in the, change the Supreme Court's, in the change in the Supreme Court's membership. Between 1969 and 2000, 13 justices were appointed to the court. Of those 13, three were appointed because he or she was believed to be a strict constructionist who could be trusted to make principled decisions. And during the period, many of the Warren Court's decisions were either set aside or watered down. Alas, however, Bork's vision of a Supreme Court free of judicial activists and dominated by principled decision-making judges proved elusive, as the Supreme Court, for the first time in its history, stopped the electoral process in a presidential election and effectively made a president of the United States. Every one of the members who comprised the majority in Bush v. Gore was the kind of judge Bork wanted to see on the Supreme Court. Bork's solutions to the Supreme Court's lack of accountability proved inadequate, as judges who were ostensibly committed to principal decision-making through the application of neutral principles derived from the Constitution became arguably greater activists than the liberals of the Warren Court. That occurred because even as highly intelligent human beings, Supreme Court justices are as susceptible as all other mortals to overreaching when they exercise political power, 
unless, of course, they can be made accountable. But from what I'm able to determine, there is little imposed on members of the court except for perhaps what each chooses to impose upon his, himself, him or herself. We are thus left to respond to the court's choices regarding what the Constitution means in one of two ways. We may accept them either because these choices coincide with the values we hold or because we believe the reasoning that they are based on is sound and compelling or because, the lack of meaningful because of the lack of meaningful recourse, we may acquiesce. At their best, those choices are shaped by the justice's strong sense of personal integrity, intellectual honesty, genuine humility, wisdom, and great deference toward institutions that are subject to recall by the electorate. Sometimes it happens, but frequently, especially nowadays, it does not. Now, what I want to do is focus on the Commerce Clause and two cases that came under it to point out how this tends to operate or, or what happens. Congress responded to the economic crisis of the 1930 uh, by enacting legislation that was designed to improve the nation's agriculture. That sector had suffered the most. And so Congress relied on its power to regulate interstate commerce to pass the Agricultural Adjustment Act that sought to end overproduction and increase the prices of agricultural commodities by restricting the amount farmers could produce through a combination of allotments and payment incentives. In 1936, three years after the act became law, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional. But Congress persisted by passing another version of it the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938. In June of 1940, the Secretary of Agriculture, Claude Wickard, pursuant to the power given him under the legislation, allotted the state of Ohio a wheat production quota for 1941, such that Roscoe Filburn, a farmer in Montgomery County of that state, was limited to growing 11.1 acres of wheat. Filburn decided the allotment limitation, uh, defied the allotment uh, limitation, and planted 23 acres instead. He harvested 239 bushes from the extra 11.9 acres, all of which he intended to use exclusively for his farm and his home. The government fined him $117.11, or 49 cents for each of the 239 bushels. Bill Burns sought injunctive relief, arguing that the legislation was unconstitutional as applied to him because his actions did not involve interstate commerce. His wheat, he said, was not intended to sell on the wheat market. It was merely local production, not commerce that was reachable under Congress's commerce power. This time, the court deferred to Congress by holding that the 1938 Act was constitutional. For part of its reasoning, the court relied on an older case, Gibbons versus Ogden, which said that Congress's commerce power was so broad, so embracing and penetrating that effective restraints on its exercise must proceed from political rather than judicial process. Furthermore, the court said, even if Phil Burns' activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still whatever its nature, be reached by Congress 
if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. Thus, the right, under the right circumstances, Congress could use its power, commerce power, to regulate the behavior of private individuals. The right circumstances meaning that the behavior of the individual so regulated had a substantial economic effect on commerce. The health care law passed by Congress in 2010 shared some similarity to the Agricultural Adjustment Act. A mandate was directed at the relevant population, that is, wheat producers in Wickard, and consumers of medical health care services in the health care law. Secondly, each law represented Congress's effort to respond to a crisis that threatened the public welfare. But there was a difference. In 1938, Congress attempted to regulate the wheat market by using the commerce power to limit the supply of wheat and increase its price. It did so by compelling and encouraging wheat farmers to stop growing wheat that glutted the national market. In 2010, Congress sought to use its commerce power to increase the supply of health insurance and simultaneously lower its price. It attempted to do so by compelling and encouraging individuals to buy health insurance in advance of their desire or need to use medical, health, medical and health care services or to show that they could self-insure. Was the difference between Wickard and the case of the recent health care law a substantive di difference? The critical question asked and answered affirmatively by the court in Wickard was that the behavior or lack thereof exerted a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. There was, a compel there was compelling data produced by the government in the healthcare case on which a reasonable people could have relied to also answer that same question affirmatively. But the court's majority ruled that the law could not be sustained under the Commerce Clause. That majority did not trouble itself with the question that Congress had been trying to address. Instead, that group's focus was on where is the limit of Congress's power to regulate com commerce. It chose to view the health care insurance market as quite like the market in vehicles and clothing. It reasoned that as the government could not order a consumer to buy a vehicle or a jacket, when that person did not want to do so, so it could not order an individual who has no interest in buying health care insurance to do so. Consequently, the court disregarded the import of the fact that Congress found, namely, that unlike buying vehicles and jackets in which the need to purchase the item and the opportunity to purchase it at an affordable price generally coincide, Purchase of health care insurance is generally not available at affordable prices when the consumer is on the verge of receiving treatment, the time he or she feels the greatest need to have it and procure it. Why did the majority of the court in the health care case choose not to defer to Congress's will as the court, court did in the Wheat case? The problem was not the comment, Commerce Clause provision itself, because the Commerce Clause provision, having been interpreted as being wide and broad, gave Congress immense discretion, so much discretion that the court again said 
effective restraints on its exercise must proceed from political rather than from judicial process. Given that fact, one can reasonably infer that Congress's attempt to deal with the crisis in healthcare through the exercise of its commerce power in the Patient Protection and Affordable Healthcare Act was surely permissible. It may not have been what the justices may have thought was the best approach, but permissible. Justice Ginsburg, however, explained why Justice Roberts rejected the government's argument that the Commerce Clause authorized Congress to require individuals to buy insurance in her dissent. She said the following, underlying the Chief Justice's view of the Commerce Clause must that un underlying the Chief's view that the Commerce Clause must be confined to the regulation of active participants in a commercial market is a fear that the commerce power would otherwise know no limit. Justice Ginsburg then observed, the Chief Justice could certainly uphold the individual's mandate, individual mandates without giving Congress carte blanche to enact any and all purchase mandates. What she was saying was this, look, it's logically possible for the Chief Justice to reconcile his legitimate concerns about the outer limits of the Commerce Clause with Congress's constitutional right to act in the manner that it had chosen. Her argument was especially compelling because, as the court said in Gibbons versus Ogden, defining those outer limits of that power is more of a political task than a judicial one. So the healthcare case presented the Chief Justice with a choice between two constitutional values. On the one hand, there was the value of individual liberty and freedom. On the other, there was the value of, of the right of Congress to decide for itself how it should go about addressing a problem that endangered the nation's general welfare. The Chief Justice had, and continues to have, a deep commitment to, the tenet of the federal, to a tenet of the Federalist Society that disapproves of any action by Congress based on its commerce power that arguably expands the welfare state but he had a much deeper commitment still as the leader of an unelected and unaccountable, but nevertheless powerful public, public policy-making institution to refrain from interfering with Congress's action in an area where the Constitution was permissive. He could have chosen to stay, to, uh, stay true to his ideology and deal with the matter in the same way that the four other Federalist Society members on the bench did by declaring the whole of the Health Care Act unconstitutional, the difficult work by the Congress and the President to get it enacted into law notwithstanding. Or he could have made what Bork had called a principal decision by allowing Congress to proceed along the path it had chosen, but with a firm and explicit expression of the need to identify the limits of the commerce power preferably by Congress, but if not, eventually by the court. He didn't either. He chose an unprincipled solution that allowed him to stay true to his ideological commitment to limit Congress's power over its exercise, over, over, to limit Congress's exercise of its power over commerce, and simultaneously allow the, the act to slip through to the harbor of legitimacy. Though Congress had no authority to enact the mandate pursuant to its commerce power, he said, it did not have the authority to do so under its taxing power. Or it did have the authority to do so under its taxing power. 
It was not the worst of choices, but given that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was enacted by a government brought to power by the will of the majority of the voters, and that the legislation itself was not inconsistent with the applicable ruling case law that was 68 years old, it most certainly was not the best. Thus, we are left with the Supreme Court choices to accept or to acquiesce. What other choice do we have? Thank you.